Welcome to the Asian Digital Supermovers interview series on Clubhouse, where we speak to experts, founders, and investors about the Asian digital economy and ecosystem every week. Monica, Mushir, and I, Pritish, invite guests for a conversation about building, scaling, and operating businesses in Asia. Follow our club on Twitter. Our handle is AD Supermovers for providing us any feedback and staying updated on interview series, guests, and topics. Today we are speaking to William, and uh, he will be talking about his journey building frontline ventures. It's a very fascinating journey in the last eight to nine years since 2012. He has built a venture capital fund which now manages 250 million euros and has invested over 100 startups. At the same time, when he started off the, the venture fund, he was the youngest person to be a partner. Welcome, William. Thanks so much, guys, for having me. I appreciate uh, you organizing everything. Brilliant. So I think let's start off with your journey and definitely do throw in your spectacle story of wearing a square and a circular. I just can't miss that every time I speak to you. So tell us about how your journey started being into venture capital and why do you think your spectacles, square and a circular glass makes or helps you stand up? Sure. I'm not sure how far you want me to go back into how I got there, but basically when I left college, the one thing that I knew I wanted to do was I knew I wanted to start my own company, but I didn't know what I wanted to start or, or how to start it. And so I was looking at different jobs, trying to think what job would put me in a good place to to try and eventually someday start my company. And I thought, okay, if, if I, at the time, you know, investment banking was a big thing and I thought, okay, well, that, that will give me some contacts. I'll learn a lot about the financial side of the world. And then also, uh, I would hopefully earn enough money to save some money and start a company. So I said, okay, perfect. So I, I got a job in Lehman Brothers. And that lasted three months before it went bankrupt. So it probably wasn't the best choice. But unlike probably most of the employees of Lehman Brothers, I was extremely lucky in what happened next. The the person who I had worked with over the summer was a guy called Michael Toy. And he rang me a week after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And he said, look, William, uh, I'm just back from Japan. I've helped negotiate that Nomura are going to buy Lehman Brothers in Europe and in Asia. <clears throat> but I've told them I'm not going to join. I want to start my own investment banking boutique, change the revenue model and make it more honest and transparent for our clients. And I'd love you to join. Would you like to join? And so I joined Michael, you know, on, on kind of day one, myself, him and, and his, his PA, Carol. And, and that was a company called Andre Partners. And that grew from kind of the three of us day one to have about a hundred, a little over a hundred people in London, New York and Paris in 18 months. And for any of the people on the call who've been involved in building teams to go from kind of effectively zero or three to plus a hundred in 18 months, it means that an enormous part of your time is just managing the scaling of a company. And that was an amazing experience for me. I think it was also a great experience that we raised money for that. And also at the same time, we're working on some of the biggest M&As and IPOs in Europe. And so all in all, it was, you know, a crazy 18 months. And I guess by the end of it, what I realized was that you know, we now had a HR team and an IT team, you know, three office managers in three different countries. We had a, a partners board and investors uh, board. And my role, if I wanted it now, is no longer being involved in everything, but it was, it was actually just being an investment banker. And that's fine, but it wasn't the role that I, I realized I enjoyed. And so I left without knowing what I was going to do next, but I ended up getting involved in, in two things. So one was I got very involved in a network called Sandbox, which is a network of, of kind of young innovators and entrepreneurs under 30. I got involved running the, the London Hub and then eventually went on to become one of the global trustees. 
And then I also started my own e-commerce company. And it was during the experiences with both of those, both raising money myself and then also hearing about the other sandboxers who were trying to raise money, I was just, I became very disappointed and frustrated with European venture. And, and basically I felt that, you know, the terms were awful. The timing was slow. The value add was poor. And of course there were some exceptions to this, but not many. And I, you know, frequently when I was at different startup events and speaking on panels and stuff, I would be very negative or critical of the venture capital ecosystem in Europe. And then two VCs that I knew approached me saying that they wanted to start a new, they were coming from two different funds. And they approached me saying that they wanted to start a new VC. And would I be interested in, in chatting to them about it? Because effectively, I was so critical of venture, they thought that they wanted to run the idea by me to see if it, you know, passed the sniff test in the sense of, was I just going to say that this was an, an, another version of the same parable? And, you know, we met, it ended up being about four or five hours that we, we spoke about what venture could be, why it was better in the US, and even some aspects in Asia were better already than Europe, and 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 why Europe was so far behind, and what Europe needed to do to, to get better. And, and, you know, very humbly for me, you know, Will and Shay, the other two partners, the uh, founding partners of Frontline, they called me a few days later saying, like, look, we weren't planning on having a third partner, but would you like to be the, you know, the third partner in Frontline? And I was only you know, 26, 27 at the time, so, you know, it was incredibly humbling because, you know, both Will and Shay had, you know, really successful and uh, experienced careers. Um, and, I mean, for example, Shay, he, he had already sold, sorry, he had already sold two companies and built four funds before I left college. So, you know, he was somebody who was amazing to have someone like that who was both a mentor to me, but also treated me like an equal as a partner. And, and so that was how I got into venture. And then to answer your question on the glasses, uh, for anyone who's on the call who, who doesn't know me, my mom is an optician. So I grew up kind of being very aware of people's glasses and how uh, my mom would often talk about how glasses can shape a person or change the face or change the conversation. And, and so I've always often tried to find glasses that slightly stood out in different ways and and my my most recent pair which is now a few years old is a pair that where where one eye is circular and one eye is square and i i wear them basically because i think it's a really easy way to start conversations with people my job is all about networking and building relationships with people and it's a fun quirky way to be remembered by people and it's a, a really easy thing i would say about 20 percent of the conversations i have new conversation a conversation with a new person my glasses will come up within the first 30 seconds. And that's an, it's always important to find icebreakers to make it easier for people to build relationship and start conversations. So that's, that's a bit of a long monologue, but uh, answers to your two questions. Brilliant. Yeah. The picture that uh, William has on, on Clubhouse is definitely not the one I'm referring to. Definitely oh, yeah. you should uh, Google him out and you will find a number of pictures where he's wearing glasses, which are one square and one circular. So moving from there, now you have a fund which is eight plus years old. You manage 250 million, sorry, uh, euros and you have invested in 100 plus startups. How has that journey been and what are the three top things that you've learned out of building the fund and investing in startups? Well, I guess as you pointed out, it's still just 250 million, which is obviously a huge number. But, you know, maybe someday I'll live up to your, your slight mistake there and, and I'll be managing 250 billion. But what, what are the, what are the top three things that I've learned along the way? The first is I, I, I guess I never really thought about how hard it is to raise a venture capital fund. Before I went into venture, I always kind of just thought that these people just had money in some way and, 
and for me it was the hard part was the entrepreneurs getting the money and of course it is very hard for entrepreneurs to get capital as well but I, I don't think that I don't think entrepreneurs realize how many VC funds try to start how many VCs try to start VC funds and don't how how the, like the average time to raise a first fund in Europe is two years so even just the concept of just being able to just stop doing and earning for two years you know when that's the average time I know people who spent four years raising their first fund and that's really because the you know the pension funds, the banks, the endowments, they you know, they really take very long times to to make decisions and have very long internal processes and want to build relationships over long periods of time. So that's that's one thing that I, I think I learned from a VC perspective. I think I think the other thing I underestimated was that when you start off as a VC, you suddenly become or almost overnight you become popular in inverted commas in that when people hear that you have money. You, people want to meet with you. They want to talk to you. They want to spend time with you. And I'd love to say it was because of my wit and my charm and my incredible intelligence and personality. But the reality is that I have the ability to write checks in the millions into people's companies, which is a, a life-changing amount of money and, and is so incredibly meaningful for some people who are you know, really working so hard and building companies that really, that matters to them. And so I think that the, the thing that I, I have learned a lot of is how to make sure that it doesn't go to your head. It doesn't, because it's easy to make it, you think, it's easy to think that it's just about you, that people want to all this time and listen to you. By the way, thank you everyone for listening to me today. Um, but the reality is that people often want to build relationships because of that money and that I have access to. And so I think that that's the, the second thing I'd say is it's really always important to make sure that you're grounded, you stay humble, that you, 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 you remember that, that I am in this incredibly lucky position to be able to to write these checks to these entrepreneurs and um, that actually, although a lot of VCs treat entrepreneurs as like they need to earn their respect, in reality, I very much go into every meeting with an entrepreneur saying that, you know, if this entrepreneur, if this next person I'm meeting is going to be this incredible entrepreneur, the best entrepreneurs or the best deals always have many VCs fighting for them. And so I always take it that every, every meeting with an entrepreneur is very much that I have to earn their trust and their respect. Not just, it's not just a one-way thing, which I think is the way many VCs work. And then uh, what third tip would I say? Maybe before I went into VC, I, I really underestimated how important self-awareness was as a quality for entrepreneurs. And I won't spend too much time talking about it now. I don't know if you want to ask later about it, but, but it's now one of the key things that I look for in entrepreneurs. And it's funny that I, I very rarely ever hear VCs talking about the importance of self-awareness in entrepreneurs. But it's, it's generally one of the, if I don't think an entrepreneur has self strong self-awareness, I straight away will not be investing in them. And so maybe the, those are three very off the top of the head. I'm sure there's tons of other things that I'm not saying. You will explore that in the next few minutes. Before we go to the next question, I just want to do a quick reset of the room. Welcome everyone who has just joined. Welcome to the Asian Dream Supermovers Club. It is run by Mushid, Monica, and me. Mushid looks at DeFi, FinTech. Monica, everything with product, and I look at growth and scaling and ventures. We are speaking to William today. He is the founding partner of Frontline Ventures, a fund which has been eight plus years old, managing 215 million euros and has invested in 100 startups. The key interesting thing about this conversation would be as we progress and understand from William how he built it and what he learned is how he learned things about the Europeans European as well as the U.S. venture market and how actually that extrapolates to the Asian market as well. So before we get into that, I would like to 
ask everybody and request everybody to ping in your network to join if they're interested in the conversation and obviously spread the word. So William, I think there are two parts. One is this comes from a conversation we had on our previous podcast. Thanks for doing that. Who is your actual customer? Is it the entrepreneur or is it your LP? And second, do uh, double click on the self awareness piece that you talked about. Yeah, I I remember I enjoyed the conversation on on that on that podcast. You know, one of the things that I I think is very interesting is that most most investors, if you ask them who their customer is, they will usually say, or the most VC investors. They will usually say it's the LP, i.e. The inv- an LP is the investor in a VC fund. And, you know, very early on in Frontline, we realized that actually, if we wanted to get into the best deals, which is our goal as a fund, our customer needs to be the entrepreneur. And our belief is that if we get the best entrepreneurs, then the best LPs will want to invest in us in the future. Now, the problem with our approach is that it's harder than to raise at the beginning because we don't design our fund to meet the needs of what LPs necessarily want. We design it to meet the needs of what entrepreneurs want. For example, there are some funds who have large teams that just manage investor their investor reporting or create all these beautiful reports that they send to their investors. You know, there are other teams that have call centers where it's like you know, 30 people who are just calling up potential new investors every single day. And that's not the way we structure it. If we're going to spend more money on internal resources, I prefer to hire somebody who's you know, going to help our teams with how they build out their sales and marketing or how they do their talent recruiting. And that's the way we think is frontline. And, and we very much see the, the entrepreneur always as our customer. And we design our fund around that. And then, and then your second customer, question around self-awareness, kind of following off from the last point. Realistically, what is self-awareness? Self-awareness is, is understanding what you are good at or what you are bad at. And why do I look for that so strongly in entrepreneur? Basically, and for, for context for everyone on the call, the frontline has, has two different funds. We have a seed fund and a growth fund, but where I spend the majority of my time is on the, the seed fund. And so at the early stages, <clears throat> when you are a pre-seed or a seed round, actually the entrepreneurs don't need any self-awareness. And that's why I think a lot of early stage investors don't talk about it because you can actually, when you're starting a company, you can micromanage everything. You can do everything. And so realistically, you can be in a position that you have very poor self-awareness but you're just a high output person and getting everything done. The reality is that once you start getting to series A, series B, series C, and your team starts growing from 30 to 80 to 150 people, et cetera, you know, if you have poor self-awareness, two things will happen. One, you won't be able to micromanage people and therefore you will struggle as a manager and as a, like, as a kind of at the org chart and the bureaucracy in the organization will really stretch and become a problem. The second thing that will happen is people who have poor self-awareness tend not to hire people who compliment them. They tend to hire people who who match them. And so suddenly what, what you'll realize is that a bunch of your senior team are people who are exactly like you and or yes or yes people. <clears throat> and that is a, a recipe for disaster when it comes to the company. You want to have diversity of thought across your team. You want to have people whose skills complement you, not match you. Um, and and uh, and we've seen that now with a few of our founders where we didn't think they had great self-awareness, but we thought there was a great opportunity or we thought that they were great in other ways. And I think it's now pretty solidified in the front line that, you know, we need to see an entrepreneur has really strong ways of, of showing self-awareness. And so you might then ask the question, I might preempt it, 
how do you tell if an entrepreneur has good self-awareness in just a few meetings? Obviously, with any of these things, you can never know perfectly. But some of the sort of things that we would ask, for example, would be, I'll always ask them to draw me what their org chart will look like in 18 months. And so they'll, I mean, in the days of non-lockdown COVID, they would go up to the whiteboard and they would basically draw out the org chart. And that would tell me a lot immediately about how they imagine the team looking. And then I'll ask them, well, could you tell me what the sort of background that head of marketing would be? Or what's the background of that VP of engineering that you're going to hire? And when they start to tell me their backgrounds, then I start to understand how the, the, the skills that those people have. And then I'll say, well, why do you want to hire that person? And once you go two or three questions deep on, on a, on a kind of an exercise like that, you start to really understand what are the areas that they value or don't in the people that they want to hire. I think you can also look at who are the early people that a founder surrounds themselves with. That could be co-founders or it could be advisors, could be angel investors. And that will also tell you that if they've gone out again and found people like themselves, Versus, and, and we very frequently see, you know, founding teams that come in with three people that are literally the exact same background. And that's not a really great founding team. It doesn't show great self-awareness in the founding team. So those are some of the things that we look for and why we think it's so important. Brilliant. For everyone who's listening in, we have closed hand raise. We will be opening it in 10 minutes after finished a few questions and set the stage. And please do keep your questions ready. And if you have any questions to William, please do ask. He's one guy among the uh, over the years who I've known who really takes time to give you input and feedback and whoever you may be. And if he knows you, definitely will will spend that time. So if you do have a question to clarify or you have a, a point or an observation, do keep it ready and we will open the hand raise in eight minutes. In the meanwhile, if you want to invite somebody to the room, do so. William, I think from there, my question would be that when you started raising your fund, what difference did you see any difference between raising from the european market and the us market or did you see there were any differences in in your lp conversations yeah de- definitely so again i don't know the level of knowledge of people on the call but just to set a bit of backdrop europe historically if you went so when we raised our fund it was 2012 our first fund if you went back over the previous 15 years from 2012 backwards europe had massively underperformed in venture capital it was not an exciting asset class. And realistically, if you were to base your decision on past uh, record, you wouldn't rush towards Europe. So that had a few knock-on effects. So then let me take another step back and say, if you look at the US, what are the kind of the stereotypical types of investors in venture capital? So one of the biggest is endowments. Those are university endowment funds. The next is pension funds. Then you've got family offices, then you've got corporates, and that will account for the majority of investors in most venture capital funds. And sorry, the fund of funds is, is, is another type. So now the problem is that Europe, because it hadn't been performing, pension funds, let's start with them. Pension funds are traditionally, understandably, very risk averse investors, and they weight their decisions heavily on historical past performances. And so most pension funds in Europe were not even thinking about investing in venture. And even the ones that did were putting very small percentages of their portfolio, maybe between half to 1% of their portfolio was going into venture compared to between 2 and 4% of many venture, many pension funds in the US. And so straight away, you know, in the pension fund bucket, you're talking about, you know, I would say 
you know, uh, less than a quarter of the capital that was available from pension funds in the U.S. for venture capital was available for venture capital funds in, in Europe. And it was then harder to get capital from those pension funds because they were looking at passive returns. So many of them would just say no anyway. So it was probably even smaller than that. Then the next one is is endowments. Now, endowments don't really exist in Europe in the same way they do. In the U.S., every major university has an endowment that's usually at least uh, like half a billion to a billion in size many of them many billions in size. And, and in Europe, that's just not the case. And even the big kind of bigger funds that do have endowments, whether it's like a Oxford or a Cambridge type, you know, their endowments are largely connected to land ownership. And what that basically means is that they're very illiquid. So although it might be a two billion endowment, they might only have about 100 to 300 million of liquid capital to invest across many different asset classes, venture being one of them. So again, you know, endowments probably account for anywhere from 10 to 20% of, of venture capital funding in the US, that then completely missing from Europe. And then the third big branch is family offices. And so if you need a family office in the US, the likelihood is that either that person you're speaking to made the money, their parents made the money, or their grandparents made the money, i.e. it's within two degrees away from where the money's made. And that's important because if you grew up, if you built a company, you understand this concept of creating and building more. If you're the sons or daughters of people who built uh, companies, you grew up seeing your parents build something. And in the furthest away case, if your grandparents were, you grew up hearing the stories of how your grandparents built something meaningful. And that creates this mentality in family in a family office of capital creation to their investing strategy. And a capital creation strategy has more risk to it and therefore is much more willing to invest in venture capital. Then now if you jump to Europe, the majority of family offices you meet in Europe are seven to 10 degrees away from where the money is made. And, and that effectively means that they have a very different strategy. And most of their family office investing strategies are not capital creation strategies. They're capital preservation strategies, which are much, much more risk averse. And their goal is to make sure that their kids and their kids' kids keep the same rough level of lifestyle and income that they, that they have. And there's no critique to either strategy, but the problem for a venture capital fund is that, you know, in a capital preservation strategy, which is the majority of family offices in Europe, that doesn't leave much room, if any, for venture capital, whereas in the capital creation strategy in the US, there's a lot more. So what does that mean? That means that the three largest pools of capital available to venture capital funds in the US don't didn't really exist to the same extent in Europe um, back in 2012. And so, you know, it just meant that it was much harder to raise. It doesn't mean it's impossible. But it was definitely a lot, a lot harder than, and, and that's part of the reason that the average time to raise a fund in Europe is two years. For our first fund, should I say. But thankfully, you know, we were very lucky. We had some really great uh, early investors uh, who supported us. It still took us, it still took us about 14 months to raise the first fund, but, but we were lucky enough to have some, we managed to convince uh, two pension funds, a bank and two family offices. And both those family offices were self-made in the generation that we were speaking to. So again, they were the capital creation mentalities. That's very fascinating. And I think that can be extrapolated to Asia as well. If you look at markets like uh, China, uh, India, Southeast Asia, money was actually created probably two or three generations from where it is presently. And that is why probably they have a mentality and a thought process more like the US. And that's why they do have a strong focus towards investing in venture capital, where they are not trying to preserve the wealth rather than trying to, they have learned how to create it and probably they're going to re- keep recreating by taking those bets, which potentially 
may not be bets which would preserve the wealth rather than probably put it into an illiquid asset with a high risk associated to it. So I think that is a very key point uh, and a correlation between your experience between the US versus the European market and what happens in the Asian market or what we see in the Asian market presently. I think the next very interesting thing that we discussed was... I mean, maybe, maybe sorry, Pratish, just before you get on to that. Sure. On a few of my trips to... to to both mainland China, Hong Kong, uh, and Korea, which obviously not all Asian markets are the same, but one of the other things I've seen there a lot is, is multifamily offices where kind of there, there are these uh, kind of fund managers that basically manage the wealth of many family offices. They've been a very big part of venture capital and you don't see those being as big a part of venture capital in Europe, but they seem to be much more active in, in, in Asia from my experience in speaking with them. Yes, that is true. I'm also assuming the reason being that the Asian market is way more dynamic uh, than the European market. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but that's probably where I see it. If I'm setting a venture capital fund or I'm investing in it as an LP, I will probably be looking at the most buzzing and uh, fast-moving markets. I'm assuming that that is the assumption there for why they are so active. Yeah, I think for for more for. for... For like deeper tech with university spinouts or for more enterprise technology, I think Europe is probably a more interesting location. But when it comes to consumer technology, consumer focused technology, I mean, Asia has been one of the most exciting markets for the last decade to be investing in, for sure. Yeah, that's right. Now moving on to other, another exciting um, point is building a personal brand versus a firm's brand. Right. And do give us your thoughts and also do talk of, talk us about Sequoia. Right. We had that discussion and how do you think about it and how they have built it and how you're building it as well. Well, I think that th- there's a challenge. There's a kind of a, a natural conflict in venture capital where, you know, should a fund like Frontline focus on building Frontline's brand or should we just focus on building, you know, myself and the other partners' brands? Because, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, they focus on who is the partner I'm going to work with. And, you know, it's funny. If you look at some of the, the best uh, VCs in the world, you know, I'll often ask, ask entrepreneurs, you know, can you name me one? Like, do you know who Sequoia is? Do you know who Benchmark is? And they'll always say yes. And then I'll say, name me one general partner at Sequoia or Benchmark. And at the best, I usually get one name, but it's very rare. I even get one name. And I think that that's something that people often don't underestimate is that I think a lot of the best funds in the world, they don't focus on, on the partner brand. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, if I ask people, have you heard of Mark Suster or Brad Feld? You know, they'll almost always say yes. People in the, the tech and VC ecosystem. And then I'll say, what fund do they work for? And they usually won't be able to tell me that either. And so that is part of the reason why in Frontline, we believe that it should be brand, the, the, the funds brand that we focus on rather than the individual's brand. Now, I think that works really well for a general partner. I think where that can get more conflicted is for some of our up-and-coming, like our principals or, or junior partners, because, you know, they, obviously, in, in our case, all of the people who work for us, we hope that they continue to stay with us and grow with us as we grow as a firm. But naturally, you know, the way venture capital is, it's quite top-heavy, and it often means that not everyone can move their way up to kind of the pyramid, per se. And so... You do have this conflict that sometimes a firm that promotes the brand over the individual can sometimes have it harder to hire great people and um, younger in their career. And so what we try and then focus on is really we do have a, a slightly different approach for some of them or, or 
younger or junior employees, where we will try and help promote them uh, and, and help them build their initial brand. Um, but, but in general, the vast majority of our marketing or our belief is, is focused on the funds brand over, over the individual. But that is, there are many VCs that I like. If I was at a, a, it's been a conversation that I've had at many different dinners with different VCs. And, and I'd say it's really a, a, a 50 50 split in how people believe it. Many believe that you should only really focus on the individual's brands. And so, so it, that's, that's my personal opinion. Uh, but there are definitely, I would say that, that that would be disagreed with by many VCs as well. But isn't it true that building a generational brand is when you think about building your company, a funds brand, and when you're building a brand or a VC fund or investment vehicle, within your lifetime, you should focus on your name as an individual. Do you think that's probably a better summary of? Yeah, and I think that's a great way of putting it. Basically, you know, a lot of people go into venture capital to retire. And what I mean by that is that they've had their career, they've maybe had a big exit or they've, you know, they've made a bunch of money already. And venture capital is a great career to retire. It basically, you know, you can choose how much or how little you work on it. You, you're managing money, but at the same time, you can to choose who you manage the money of and how you manage that. You know, you get to spend time with all these amazing entrepreneurs every day who are not only trying to convince you and get you excited about their ideas, but also it's incredibly intellectually stimulating. So it's a great job. It, you know, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it just keeps dinging the top of the pyramid. So that's why you see a lot of people at the end of their careers starting venture capital funds. And in those situations, those people, they don't care if the fund lives beyond them or not. They're just focused on doing something for them for the last part of their career that's interesting. Realistically, as we talked about earlier, like I was 26, 27 when we started Frontline. Like I wasn't going into Frontline to retire. I wanted to build something. And I would love that Frontline would continue to exist after I either retire or leave it, whatever that is in the future. I don't want Frontline to be dependent on any one general partner or partner in our firm because of their brand being attached to it. And I would like, you know, and, and we also, I mean, we structure the economics of the fund very differently as well. And that, you know, if I or any of the other general partners leave, our economics and the, the ownership of the, the fund go drop very, very quickly. And so, and we specifically structure it like that so that the fund will hopefully live well beyond however long I spend in it. And I hope to spend a lot more time in it, but, but that's the way we structure it. And I think that is a good way of thinking about it. But many of the VCs who would disagree with me are probably more of the mindset that they're in VC to retire rather than in VC to build something. Great. Monica, over to you. Thank you so much, William. I'm just going to do a quick room reset because there were, there are a lot of new folks who've joined us. So for everybody who's listening in, you're listening into Asian Digital Supermovers, which is a top club in Asia. If you wanted to follow us, if you haven't done so already, all you need to do is click on the greenhouse icon next at the top of the page and click on follow. Also, please do consider giving the moderators a follow and of course, William and all the speakers on stage so you know when they are uh, going live and more importantly which rooms they are attending because more often than not you will probably like our preference for the rooms that you'd like to attend as well for the content that we are following clubhouse notifications aren't very reliable at the moment therefore it's better to follow the speakers also just wanted to inform everyone that apart from all the great rooms that you've been hearing over the weekend from asian digital supermovers we also have a packed week coming ahead 
with Pumushi leading the way on Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. where he has an Indian blockchain future AMA with Vivek Deep, the, the country head of R3. On Wednesday, we have our typical uh, Asian, Asian tech news at 7.30 p.m. And on Thursday, we have our mixer, which happens again at 7.30 p.m. So we'll really urge you to please do bookmark these particular uh, calendar invites and do join in. And in case, again, if there are problems with the bookmarks or with the notifications, just follow us and you'll be receiving notifications. Also, if you haven't followed our uh, social properties, including Twitter, LinkedIn, then do that because we keep posting about all the upcoming calendar about all the upcoming events including the events when we go live so for twitter it's ad supermovers and the same for linkedin as well and also on telegram so you could follow any of those also william i had a great uh, question to dovetail into what you were just mentioning so there was a recent uh, podcast that i was listening to where somebody said that of speak that a founder's uh, brand is really the company's brand. Now, when you mentioned this at a, a level which is much higher than that, which is about the about the startup or the fund, and then about the fund, it's a level higher than that. I was wondering how much do you encourage uh, the founders to actually build their own personal brand and have people associate not just with the product that they are building, but also help them build in public because that is also a recent phenomena which has really taken force wanted to get your views on that. I think I think what we encourage with our founders is for them to build a culture that's authentic for them and the style of work that they are. So there's a very large there's a there's a large variance in in the types of cultures and working styles in our companies. And there are some founders who naturally go very well with the media or creating content or brand building and and we fully encourage that where where they can there are others who who really don't and they like to stay very private and they they have a very different working style in their, in, in their companies you know and you see that a little bit for example in in in, in the company stripe where you know both john and patrick build an incredible culture in stripe and and you know, i've never heard anything said otherwise by any employee i've ever met from the company but but for a long time they were not very public facing now, I think John in recent years has become a lot more public facing, but Patrick is still a lot less so. So to me, it's, it's much, it's definitely not something I think is compulsory. I think if that's a skill set that the founder has and enjoys doing, I would highly encourage it. But the reality is that if it's not something they enjoy doing or it's not something they're particularly uh, naturally good at and they have to spend time to be good at it, I'm not sure getting good at it or them not enjoying a portion of their time is worth, is worth doing that for the company when Realistically, in these fast-growing companies, they all have better things to be doing with their time. If that doesn't isn't something that comes naturally to them, that makes perfect sense, William. And it's a very balanced response because I don't think we should be forcing them either way. And this also speaks to leadership at most companies, where we're probably telling people what they're doing wrong instead of what they what they can be doing well. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Monica. As you can see, we have opened up uh, raising hands and thanks, Netra, Amir, and Rohan joining in. If you have a question, do raise your hand and we will try to bring you up as well. Netra, why don't you go ahead and ask your question? Thank you, Pratish, Monica, and Mushir. It's good to be here again. And I, I couldn't resist jumping in when I saw William speaking. I've learned a lot from William by watching the way he's built his companies and his funds. 
Will, I have a question for you because you said that your approach to building Frontline is to create an organization that lasts and therefore it's it's more important to build uh, structures and incentives within the fund that uh, enable longevity versus, you know, showcasing any star investor. And I, I find this really interesting because as you say, it's a bit controversial. So some VCs don't think that VC investing is a team sport and you can see different funds, let's say poach star investors left and right. But, you know, I'm a researcher studying decision making and some of the research shows that when traders are, are poached uh, from different funds or even when, you know, the star surgeons are poached from different hospitals, the performance of that star uh, performer actually goes down because they're not bringing their team with them. And so I think that your, you know, your point is very astute. And I've really appreciated how you, how you have learned from data. I'm sure you have some data points on this, on this aspect as well, but referring to your recent post about how you're also tracking gender diversity within the fund, I, I think that it's rare to see a VC actually make use of the data that it's it's creating. And I, I guess my question to you is, what kind of data are you tracking internally? I know you're working on the gender uh, topic. And is there anything also in relation to you know how different members of your fund perform? I'd love just for you to talk about how you're learning as a VC and how you're using data. Thank you so much. This is Netra. Thanks so much, Netra. And, and I've also had the pleasure of learning many things from you over the years. So thanks for, for, for the question and, and insight. Maybe I'll deal with the first aspect. You know, anecdotally, I've uh, over the last few months, one of the TV series I've been, I've gotten quite into, which you know I, I couldn't care less about cars. I've never cared about any driving sports of any kind, but I really enjoyed the the Formula One Netflix series Drive to Survive. And the reason I bring that up is that it's also a very similar industry where you have some people who hate the building brands and some people who build amazing brands. Some people are stars, but actually when they move between the different Formula One teams, suddenly someone who's consistently won suddenly is now coming back in the fifth and seventh place now consistently. And I think people always underestimate the the team and the engine that's built around them. And in, in I guess, Formula One's case, it's a literal engine. But I guess in venture or a company, uh, or in your case, maybe the, the examples you give around the hospitals, you know, I think they underestimate about you know the environment that we have in Frontline, at least that we're trying to create is about getting the most out of everybody and about everybody helping each other. So even someone who's a superstar in Frontline is only a superstar because they're helped by so many of the other team members. And we very much see the kind of the sum of the parts being more valuable than any the individual parts broken apart. And when we're hiring new people, we very much think about and hire people who we think will add and add more than just their individual to the group. Um, so maybe that's the first, just to comment a little bit more on, on your first point. And with regards to kind of the data we track, so since we started Frontline back in 2012, we've tracked an enormous amount of data across every single deal we've ever seen, all of the people who are looking at those deals, so in our team. And you know, what's interesting is that while I have tracked every single person in our team, I'm kind of like maybe the owner of the data in our firm. I've tracked every single different person's performance over the years. I've tracked how many deals they see, how many different deals they do or don't see the industry they bring them in. We almost never talk about an individual's performance. We specifically talk about the team's performance all of the time. And while I could go and create exact kind of answers to every single person, individual's person's performance, 
as long as we feel that people are working hard and contributing to the overall team, uh, that's what we encourage. And I would never want in someone's review to say, you know, do you know your investments are underperforming compared to the rest of the team? Because that would make them feel like they need to work only on their investments. And I want to reward uh, one of my employees as much for helping me on my deal as they are rewarded for working on their own deal. And so we actually, although we have the data around individuals, that's a part that we rarely ever talk about. Uh, we track, the data we really track is more on a macro level across the team. Uh, and, then, and then to answer the question on the data we track, I mean, we track the source of every deal. We track the, the gender of the founders, the ethnicity of the founders. We track uh, the industry the deals in, the geography the deals in. We track, what else do we track? We track why we said no or, or yes to a company. Um, we'll track how far it gets in our pipeline, how long it takes to get to certain stages in our pipeline, how long it takes us from first meeting to getting to a term sheet. I'm sure there's a bunch of other things, but we track about, about 30 to 40 different data points on every single deal that we see. And realistically, you know, we see thousands of companies every year. So suddenly after kind of eight to nine years of collecting all this data, this data is just incredibly valuable. And we use it every quarter. We have an offsite as a company, as a fund. And we literally dive into the data to see, are we improving? Are we getting faster at doing deals? Are we seeing more deals in certain industries? We'll set ourselves targets to say, you know, are we, we're, we want to do more in IoT or we want to do more in blockchain. And we will then see how we actually be able to increase our deal flow as a firm over the last quarter um, or in the coming quarters. And so we, we use data in all of our strategic discussions as a firm. And I, I'm really blown away by how many VCs do not use data in their strategic kind of strategy discussions as a, term, as a firm. And like, like genuinely, I'd say 95% of VCs, if not more, don't use any data when they're making their decisions on how they design their VC strategy, which kind of blows my mind. But I don't know, maybe that's the way lots of people do it. Thank you so much. I just want to respond and say thanks for those insights. You know, I'm a researcher, and so getting you talking, getting you, hearing you talk about data is extremely exciting. It is extremely rare to see VCs use their data, and they're actually a lot of uh, VCs that you would be surprised are not sure even where to start because I think there's a misconception in VC and entrepreneurship that a lot is intuitive. And yes, of course, a lot is uh, difficult to quantify or, or even articulate. But I think that if you're not starting, if you're not actually collecting what you care about, collecting data on metrics you care about and sending and spending time, setting aside time as you have will, will with the offsite to actually think through um, what the data is telling you, then I think you're missing a huge opportunity. And, you know, just shameless plug, I think that's also a great opportunity for VCs to work with academics and neutral third parties that, that could help make sense of this and, and create some collective learning for everyone. Thanks, Will. Thanks, everyone. Agreed. Thanks, Natra. Thanks, Natra. That was a brilliant question and pretty insightful response from William. So, Amir, you're next. Amir, are you there? You're on mute. Maybe not. Rohan? Maybe everyone took a toilet break at the same time. Hi. Hi. Hey, Rohan. Hi. So go ahead. A 30-second intro to yourself. And if you have a question or observation about Williams. Right. So I'll just make a small rejoinder with a brief intro to start with. I've been a journalist for almost 16 years and having reported on Fortune 500 companies from the U.S., Austria, and 
also extensively reported on the political developments in last 16 years across various states for a financial news agency Reuters and then Indian Express and television channel and then now with Times of India for last 11 years. I'm quite intrigued with the, some of the recent developments in India which have taken place over the past uh, three or four months regarding the venture fund targeting tech in India. And with Amazon's launch of a $250 million uh, venture fund focused on India, I think it, it's one of the biggest investment and in, in, in investment in terms of targeting the subcontinent. I, I wanted to pick up Will's brains. How do you think that this, this will sort of uh, spur a growth of the entrepreneurs in the areas of agriculture and healthcare and digitization, considering we are in the age of post-COVID where not many people are willing to take big risks uh, outside the medium-sized businesses, the SMBs as we call in India, and also that the country like India, which has been on a war path with the farmers over farmers' productivity. So Amazon says that its trust, trust is going to be, you know, bringing the best, best agriculture product to consumers, while farmers have been setting this narrative in, in the Indian subcontinent that this is going to crush the control uh, of the farm leaders and the farm unions because the corporatization is is going to to arrive in the in the country and the corporates are going to decide the rates. So, so when an organization like Amazon makes such a big giant leap with a flagship event where it involves the government of India and brings a host of cabinet ministers as their faces. How do you find the e-commerce giant making this plan to bring 1 million retailers and then the neighborhood stores by 2025 through, through this sort of fund? Okay, th- th- thank you for the question. And before before I answer the question, I will caveat that you know I am not an expert in any way on, on the Indian technology or the capital ecosystem um, or, or economy. But maybe I can just give some insights from maybe how I would reflect on that from what I'm seeing in Europe and how that might impact on, on India. So the first thing is that, you know, when we started the fund in 2012, pretty much the only B2B companies we were seeing were, were companies that were large enterprise technology, where you know, they were looking for minimum contract sizes of 20, 50,000. And as time has gone on, an increasing number of the companies that we're seeing are actually targeting SMEs and they're trying to enhance or improve or, or help digitize those SMEs. And those uh, many of those businesses are are growing incredibly fast and some of them already in our portfolio are very successful. And so, you know, from what I understood from your question, you know, there's an, an enormous proportion of the Indian business economy is is SMEs. And so what we had seen in Europe is that many of these people who'd worked in these SMEs started to then say, hey, I need to have better restaurant software. I need to have better digitization of my farm. I need to have better, et cetera. And, and they realized that, that to be able to compete with some of the larger players, the SMEs needed this digitization. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we started to see a huge amount of amazing companies uh, come out of India that are targeting the SME and SMB space. And then, uh, and I hope that answered part of your question. And then the other part of the question, which was around, I think, is directly agri-tech. A lot of what we see in agri-tech is actually more like university spin-out stuff. And so I think if you want to see some really great agri-technology coming out of India, it really be about funding um, more research in universities, which, again, I'm not an expert in India. Maybe that is already heavily happening. But I think that almost all the <clears throat> most interesting agri-tech startups we see in Europe are, are spinning out of, of universities. I hope that answers the right. kind of two parts to your question. Right. No, no. Thanks. Thanks so much, Bill, for the perspective. Thanks, Ron. Amir, are you back? Maybe not. I'll just move you to the audience. So moving on, if anybody has any questions, do raise your hand and we can bring you up. And while we wait for any of any further questions, I have a plethora of questions. 
I don't think we will have enough time. We have just seven minutes left for this AMA. William, my first question, I think, after this would be that when you look at the evolution of the the European VC industry, where do you see it in the next 10 to 20 years? Thank you. That's a nice broad question. I think we're, we're seeing a few evolutions. So firstly, one of the most obvious is that Historically, there was kind of early stage funds, and I think that's then now bifurcated. You now have, you know, pre-seed funds that are micro funds that are just focused on pre-seed. You have a ton of seed-focused funds. A ton. There are a bunch of funds that are 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 just investing in between the seed and the Series A. Then you have a, a lot of funds that are just Series A funds. So I think that's one of the evolutions or or interesting changes we're we're seeing, and that that will continue to evolve. Is that you get kind of people who are very round specific. Second thing that I think we're seeing is, you know, there's an enormous amount of the U.S. funds that are opening up European offices and expanding into Europe. We've seen Sequoia announced that recently, Lightspeed announced that recently, Battery did that a year or two ago, Upfront had someone in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And, and quite a lot of the funds, Iconic as well, I, I believe. And so, so I think that we're going to continue to see that, that as many people see Europe finally actually proving itself that more and more people from other ecosystems We'll, st- we'll start to we'll start to try and take advantage of that and and get get access to that opportunity. The other thing that I would say is that in a more just like kind of I guess a remote working world, I think one thing that we're going to start to see a lot is is around is around that there's no major hubs in Europe. You know, already Europe was quite different to the U.S. in that if so much of it came out of really Silicon Valley in New York. Whereas in Europe, if you look at the at least the B2B map of Europe for all the biggest B2B companies, it is extremely spread out. You know, there are there are three multi-billion dollar B2B companies out of Lisbon in Portugal, right? There's some in, in Tallinn. You know, every, every, almost every capital city in Europe has has some. And I think that, that I think that that's only going to get more exaggerated as time goes on. London for a long time was considered the epicenter of tech in Europe. And I think if you look in 10 years' time, Realistically, I think any capital will be most likely a great place to start a company with maybe a few that are, are slightly bigger ecosystems, but, but maybe they're just three quick, quick, quick high level thoughts off the top of my head. Thank you. Venkat, welcome to the stage. You have a question. Yeah. Thank you, Pritish, uh, for the opportunity. <coughs> just a, a brief, brief background about myself. I have a couple of decades experience in the IT and, uh, engineering fields, not so much in the finance and the venture capital, but I'm just wetting my feet in recently with the taking CFA. But that aside, uh, just have a quick question for William. What is your take on valuations of these high-tech firms based on the current interest rates? My understanding from limited knowledge I have is uh, everything is uh, tied to risk-free interest rate, like 10-year U.S. Uh, bonds. If they jump hypothetically in two years, four years, they will have greater impact on something like venture funds, which have a time horizon of five to 10 years to prove themselves. And valuations definitely matter higher compared to short-term investments. So if the interest rate were supposed to go up from current one and a half percent to let's say three, three and a half, four in the next five years, how much impact does it have on the valuations of these companies? Do you look into the future or do you model those into your evaluations? I just wanted to be I'm curious to know about your thoughts. That's my question. Thank you. Thanks, Fekar. It's actually a really interesting question because it, while I don't think interest rate, uh, the interest, the, the interest rates directly affect how venture capital funds choose their pricing, 
I think it does indirectly affect it. And I'll explain how. So the people who invest in us, the pension funds, the endowments, the banks, etc., they very much have targets for their portfolio that they add their whole portfolio with regards to returns. And when the risk-free rate is higher, it is easier for them to roughly hit their targets. Um, and therefore, they need to take less risk in, in, in hitting those same targets. When the interest rates are low, they need to create more risk, but then also higher potential in their portfolio. And for, for that, venture capital funds are often, in most pension funds, the riskiest asset that they will invest in. And so by them putting an extra, like a pension fund putting an extra 100 or 200 million of their 10 billion into venture capital, that might seem like a relatively small amount for them, but it can have an, it can have a meaningful impact on their returns as a, as a, an overall pension fund. And what that means is that, and this is why it affects the valuation of companies, is that when the interest rates are lower, there's a lot more capital that wants to go into venture capital. There's a lot more pension funds and banks that want to invest in venture capital funds. And then when there's a lot more venture, when it's easier to raise venture capital funding, there are more venture capital funds. So, you know, when we started Frontline 2012, I did a kind of a deep analysis of all the different funds I could find who had done a deal within the last six to nine months in London. And I found about, I think it was about 40 different venture capital funds. You know, that list at the moment I have is, is over 180. And so the market is just so much more competitive because interest rates have been continually getting lower and therefore more of these larger asset classes are coming in. Now, when it's more competitive, it means that when I find a deal that I really like, instead of it just being me negotiating with the entrepreneur, it might be me and four other funds all trying to get in on the deal. And that then raises the, the overall pricing. Um, and then it, with regards to just the current pricing, I would say the current pricing is pretty high. Uh, where, where we invest at the seed stage, we are probably a little bit less worried about that because we're trying to invest in companies that can be worth enormous amounts of money. And obviously, if we go in at a 2 million valuation versus a 10 million valuation, that seems like it's a five times difference. But when the outcome of the companies we're looking for is the high hundreds of millions or billions, relatively speaking, we can still do very well as a fund. I think where you start going into the later stage funds, you know, the people who are targeting series B, C, D, and E, or even pre-IPO, you know, that's where the valuations become harder to rationalize uh, and harder to, 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 yeah, to, to accept. So that's at least how we think about it. But it, but it, it's, it's a good, conne- good connection to connect the interest rates to the valuations though, because it, it does indirectly impact them over a three, five year period. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Very interesting question. Chandan, sir. Yeah, thank you. Getting to the stage, hi William. I'm Chandan, based out of Hong Kong, uh, William, we are a late stage startup in uh, wearable IoT. Currently working on an ecosystem to track vitals for respiratory diseases uh, slash COVID and uh, possibility of prediction of respiratory diseases as well. But it's a very very interesting conversation regarding team and other things. My my, my question is, William, are you looking at any uh, particular sector in Europe or globally when you invest, or or based on your data, you think the growth is coming from? Thank you. Thanks. So we as a fund we target B two B companies, which is very very broad. And so, at the broadest level, that's what we target. And um, we have never been super specific on industries. Specifically because, because we invest, and for context of everyone listening, 50% of our investments in our seed fund in Europe are pre-product, 80% are pre-revenue. And so those are companies that 
you know, are still so early in their ideation that really what we focus on is, do we think the market they're going after is big enough? And do we think they're amazing? And really the heavy weighting is on the second part. So I would say in front lines analysis of a company, the majority of it is around the founders and do we think they are the right people to build this company? And so we then try not to put too much weighting on the industry. I mean, there have been some really amazing companies that I have seen, you know, in either industries that I would have said maybe are a little bit boring or stale or industries that I would never would have guessed would have been that interesting. There was one company I looked at last year, but unfortunately I, I didn't invest in in the end, but but it was in the coffee technology space and I knew nothing about the coffee technology space. If you'd asked me, do I think it's a big enough market? I would have said probably no, but the founders were really amazing in that. And, and so that's kind of the way we think. Now, to take a more macro step back, you know, what trends do I think are going to be enormous over the next few years? You know, I think healthcare still has not seen nearly enough technological disruption or innovation compared to the size of the industry. Education is another one, although education is very difficult usually to sell into. I would say that IoT, which you're working on, is super interesting. You know, we're seeing kind of the, the, the we're seeing a lot of different companies in the IoT space that are doing really interesting things. And I think the interesting thing for investors listening to this is that most VCs in Europe, and I would say globally, are kind of scared of anything that has hardware as part of it. And so actually, we see super interesting opportunities in IoT where almost no other VCs are competing for it. But we've actually had quite a few successes in companies that have had hardware and software combined. And we know how to build those and we know how to do those. And so there are certain areas like that that we think that I think that you can find an edge. You know, if you're going for a B2B enterprise software deal in Europe now and it's a good founder, they're probably going to get five or six term sheets and you're going to be fighting to get into the deal. And so I think that you can think about it that way. But the way we think about it mostly is we focus on the founders and we try and invest in the best founders. I appreciate that. Thank you, William. Uh, thank you, Pratish, for, for the time. Thank you, Jan, sir. Azdi, you're next. Hey, thanks, Pratish. Thanks for having me up there. Thank you, William. Very interesting conversation. So I work in the tech space currently. I'm with Intel and doing the marketing for cloud and AI here. Worked on uh, in a couple of startups. That's my background, and hence the question. You did mention that you uh, your investments are across B two B, and in companies that are you are looking at the founders and so forth. And you also spoke about your own team and how you are building that out. So I'm curious to understand if you look at synergies within your portfolio. So what that means is if you have a B two B company, say in agri, are you also looking at Somebody in, say, satellite technology or something like that, which might have some complementary skills and down the line, you kind of build a portfolio that way. Is there something on those lines? So I guess at, at, a, at a starting point, we don't invest in competitive technologies. So, by, But I know that that wasn't exactly what you were implying. But so I, I guess just to start that kind of conversation, we would never invest in two companies doing the same thing or targeting the same customer where the customer spend could only be chosen for one. But when we look at companies <clears throat> that could be complementary, you know, for example, one of our investments is in a company called Drone Deploy, um, at which basically effectively is software for operating and managing drones and to take footage and manage those drones. One of our other companies in London is a company called Disperse, which is used, and Drone Deploy is often used in construction. It's one of their biggest industries. Another one of our companies is a company called Disperse in London, where you know, they effectively have built AI and machine vision tools for analyzing a construction site 
on how its progress is happening. And in reality, those two companies hopefully soon may even be working together because their technologies are are completely complementary rather than competitive with each other. And now we don't actively seek that out. That happened because in both cases, both founders were amazing and we wanted them to be part of our portfolios. But but we have no problem investing in complementary technologies, but we wouldn't invest in competitive technologies and we don't actively seek out. We don't say we need to have more investments in the construction tech space or in the health tech space. It's very much more always. We need to be investing in the best founders. And if they're building coffee technology or they're building uh, health tech or construction tech, that, that doesn't matter. That, that That's less important to us. It's more the founders. Thanks, William. That helps. So it's happening organically. You're not going after complementary technologies. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Aditi. Prashant, you're the last one. Go ahead. Hi, William. Uh, this has been a great talk. A lot of information. Great listening. Sorry, uh, you're very... It's quite hard to hear you, Prashant. Yeah. You might just speak a little bit louder to the phone. Yeah, can you hear me now? Perfect. Yeah, so it's it's a great talk. I'm really enjoying this. I have a bunch of questions, but I'll only ask one. Uh, specifically, LPs in early stage VC funds who are looking in the context of impact investing, what kind of returns do they do they expect? In you know, compared to a regular investment fund, regular venture capital fund. I mean, my understanding of a number of impact-focused funds, and to be clear, you know, impact and kind of social entrepreneurship are words that are used often, but often used meaning different things. So, you know, there are some funds in Europe who have impact funds that are very much focused on investing in founders from diverse backgrounds. There are some that focused on Industries that are going to have great impact on the uh, on the world. There are some that are focused on investing in companies that are going to be enormously profitable, and there are some that are less focused on profitable but are just are focused on impact. So there there are many different types of funds, and I, and I know funds, I know some impact funds that are are trying to have as good a returns as Sequoia or any of the top funds in the world, and there are other funds impact funds that I know that that aren't trying to get a return. They're just trying to break even and but try but they're really focused on having enormous impact. So, so I think that the first thing is that different LPs have different expectations. Different funds also have different offerings to match different LPs' expectations. And so there isn't, unfortunately, one answer that fits all. I would say that the majority of LPs are still not investing in, in funds that do not focus on generating a good and strong return, that it will be at least top quartile in a normal venture capital ecosystem. And there are certain family offices. And there are certain pools of capital in Europe, for example, the Swedish church or big society capital in, in London that specifically say we're just focusing on, on, on impact. But the majority of LPs, their, their capital is, is focused on profits and they have a fiduciary duty to focus on that, the pension funds and the endowments. And, and they, and then impact is a, a bonus. And so my understanding, at least from LPs I've talked to is they still have high expectations on the returns. Again, that can be different for some family offices or certain specific LPs that target impact as an area. Understood. Thank you. Thanks, Vashant. And the last question is from Uspinder. Please go ahead. Thanks, Mushir. Thanks, Patesh. Thanks, Monica, for doing this. And thanks, William. I think it's been a great last one. And I know we've gone over time, so I'll be really short. You know, I think pretty much like everything in life, you know, there are success stories and there are stories which are still not success. 
So I just wanted to understand, you know, obviously I think mentorship is one very important facet on the VC side. So how much of your time goes into that? And if you can just speak a little bit about that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe enormously in mentorship. I, I mentioned right at the outset of this talk how I was very lucky when we started Frontline that my two partners treated me as a, a part, an equal partner, but also were incredible mentors to me because I was very young starting as a VC and had never invested before. So huge believer in mentorship, and I couldn't be where I am if I didn't have great mentors along the way. When it comes to our portfolio founders, in general, we take two approaches. So firstly, in Frontline, we, we try not to be too domineering. We, we try to invest in founders who we think can build the companies. We, we would never invest in a company that we thought was an incredible company or an incredible idea, but we needed to replace the founders. So at a start, we think that we invest in people who we think have the potential to be great leaders of large companies. Then what we will do is we very much try not to be too domineering or prescriptive at boards or as advisors. We try to make it, we try to make it clear to the founders that we want to effectively reduce the friction of the path in front of them, but not change the direction that they're going in. And that often creates a relationship with the founders where they'll consistently open up to us about their challenges ahead of them. And, and so we then try and support them at that. So that's the relationship we have. And hopefully there is elements of that that are our mentorship level. But realistically, the other side of it is that we also know that, you know, um, it's really important to have different types of mentors around the founder and also that inevitably we are conflicted to some extent uh, with our advice at times. And also, you know, the founders know that we're the investors. And and even if they realize that we try to do our very best to be unconflicted, there is still always that small bit of tension where they may not be willing to open up about everything to us or about specific topics to us. And so with that in mind, you know, we often will try and connect our founders to mentors or coaches or bring them in as angel investors. And we've done that quite a lot in the last two years, two or three years in particular. And, and we've seen great results. And it really helps our founders grow. It helps the companies be better. And it's usually relatively little cost, if any cost, because often these people will usually come into the invest in the round and then become mentors to the founders. So, so yeah, that's our brief experience with it. But it's uh, for anyone listening, I would highly encourage. I think it's really important, for, for, particularly for first-time founders who are, you know, for, you know, the key thing is, you want your founders to be learning faster than the speed of experience. If they're learning at the speed of their own experience, they're not learning fast enough because at every mistake, they'll have to make every single mistake again. So, you know, you want to try and find ways and surround them with people, whether it's the other founders in our portfolio, mentors, or us, who can help them learn faster than the speed of experience. And one of the best ways is to find great mentors or coaches to do that. Thank you for sharing that, William. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Thank you very much for all the questions. Before we close the room, we will do a rapid fire. William, are you ready? Yeah, I didn't know about the rapid fire. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for <laughs> Clubhouse, yes or no? I'm so sorry. I couldn't hear with you. you? Clubhouse, yes or no? Oh, well, that's hard to critique Clubhouse. I think Clubhouse makes a ton of sense as a product, and I can see it staying around for a while. I don't think it'll be as big in a post-lockdown world because realistically, you know, in a post-lockdown world, everyone else has their social lives back. And I think a lot of people are filling in clubhouse with their social lives. That's missing at the moment because they can't go out to restaurants or see people. But I still think it's going to be a big thing. And just maybe not as big as some people say it is. Your most favorite superhero? I've always loved Spider-Man. I don't know why. Maybe just because when I got into superheroes, he felt like he was a similar age to me. Or he felt like he was a kid at least. And it always felt like 
he was kind of learning and he wasn't like a, a Superman who just kind of knew what he was doing all the time or even Batman uh, always kind of felt like he knew what the right thing was. Spider-Man kind of felt like he he didn't really know what he was doing. So uh, that kind of felt like what it was me starting out in DC even that, you know, I'd never done an investment, but suddenly I was it kind of a general partner in a venture capital fund. So uh, yeah, maybe Spider-Man is probably the one I would jump to mind first. Literally jump, good, maybe good choice of word. <laughs> the last question. Team or market sites? Team. Team every day of the week for me. But, you know, even in frontline, there'd be people who manage it differently. So I'm, let's say, 80% team, 20% market, in my opinion of a company. But there'd be other partners in frontline who might be 50-50 on that. I don't think there'd be anybody who's not at least 50-50 on it, though. Brilliant. Thank you, William. I will hand it over to Monica for closing the room. Thank you, Pitesh. Thank you, Pratish and William. This was the most riveting conversation. I think we could have gone on for at least another half an hour because the number of questions that I also have remain unanswered. But I hope that William will come back and give us his time again. Absolutely riveting. And thank you to everybody in the audience who actually stayed in and listened in because obviously there is it's Sunday night for everyone. And wonderful to have you throughout the duration of the of the room. So for everybody who's listening in, we are the Asian Digital Supermovers. We have a packed week coming ahead. So in case you haven't signed up or followed us, then please do that by uh, clicking at the greenhouse icon at the top of your screens and clicking giving us a quick follow. Also do follow the moderators and William so that you can listen to great content coming from us. Also, we have our socials ready and updated, so we keep announcing our events there. So please do follow us on Twitter at AD Supermovers and on LinkedIn at the same address. Also, we have a Telegram group, so in case you wanted to join us and give us your feedback in real time, we would really appreciate that. Again, a big thank you to everyone who's joined us today and a big thank you to William, Pratish uh, and Mushir for being excellent. We hope to see you again and in the meantime, stay safe, stay well. And Pratish, Mushir, anything from you before we end the room? I was Sorry, just... I was on mute. And nothing more for me. Just a huge thanks for everyone dialing in and dialing in. Listen, and also for, 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 for the three of you for organizing this. It's much appreciated. Thank you all. We'll end the room now. Have a wonderful Sunday. Take care. Thanks so much, Monica. And it was uh, wonderful to have such an engaging discussion. And I, I, I was a first time listener to this event. And thanks so much for brilliantly introducing the commentary from Will and, and Pritish. Thanks so much for the incisive comments in between. I couldn't agree more with uh, Rohan. It's a brilliant, brilliant uh, session. Thank you, William. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Pritish. Thank you so much. And we love your feedback. And please keep coming back and do refer Asian Digital Supermovers to your friends as well. Like I said, we'll try to get William back. It's been an absolutely riveting conversation. Thank absolutely. You. I'll be privileged to be part of it. Perfect. William, you have your takers. We have to get you back at a later point in time. We'll try to make it more comfortable according to your time zone. But I think the conversation is not over yet. Uh, guys, feel free to be in touch with me. I've been a journalist covering all these events as well. So I'll be happy to spin off a story of this as well. And I'm readily available on Twitter on, and on DM as well, 24-7 on WhatsApp as well. So I'll be very happy to engage with all of you. Thanks. All my pleasure. Right. Thank you, Rohan. Thank you, Venkat. Thank you, Aditi, Prashant, Puspinder, William. Thank you very much. Monica and Mushir will be closing Thanks, in... 10 seconds. Bye, guys.
If you enjoyed listening to the interview, share it with your network and you can also leave a review on our Twitter page. Our handle is AD Supermovers.